Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are concluding our series looking at the book of 1 Corinthians with James Jordan, and here he's going to deliver a talk that he's titled, Excommunication. We would love to have you come and celebrate 10 years of Theopolis this summer at our yearly conference and our Trinity Feast. Our Theopolitan Ministry Conference this year is on July 17th and 18th, and we'll be exploring the topic of love as we continue to look at the theological virtues. There will be lectures from Dr. James Wood, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, and many others. And we will conclude that conference with our yearly Trinity Feast, and during that time we will feast into the evening and celebrate 10 years of our work together. So for more information about both of those events, there are links down there in the show notes for you, or you can head to our website, theopolisinstitute.com, and click on events or scroll to the bottom of that homepage. Also, if you have not yet, we invite you to download our Theopolis app. You'll need to create an account at app.theopolisinstitute.com. And then once you've created an account, you can access all of that content at that website or in the app for iOS and Android. The amount of downloads and time spent on the app so far has been very encouraging. So we hope that many of you are enjoying that and diving deep into that treasure trove that is there. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan concluding his look at the book of 1 Corinthians. Well, I thought we would take a short chapter and then questions, or we can go out and play in the rain. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's on page 258, really short Bible here. He begins by saying, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you. An immorality of such a kind as does not exist, even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Now, this report is probably from Chloe's people back in chapter 1. Paul has gotten these messages. And once again, we're back to Genesis 2. Because we're told, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they are one flesh. Now, Genesis 2 eliminates all kinds of things that people do later on in the Bible. Okay, If a helper suitable for a man is a woman, then it's not another man, and it's not an animal. The animals walked by, and there were no helpers suitable. So that eliminates two problems right there. Okay, And if a man cleaves to his wife, if they're stuck together, then he can't ever get unstuck and have another wife, can he? So he can only have one wife. You can't stick to your wife and then pop free and go and have another wife. Okay? So you can only have one wife. And you can't have any divorce except for sin. And sin hasn't come into the world yet. So that takes care of polygamy. That's outlawed by Genesis 2. And a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, which uh, we see in the book of Genesis that Isaac moved away from where Abraham was living and Jacob moved away from where Isaac was living. They literally moved to other geographical locations so as to be able to set up their own households. And every now and then you hear some perverted notion that the, the grandparents ought to rule over the children and everybody ought to live in the same place with the grandparents in charge, and that's a violation of Genesis chapter 2. But also, of course, marriage to your parents, <laughs> incest of that sort, is eliminated by Genesis chapter 2, and by extension, uh, marriage to uh, your father's wife, um, or for a woman... Uh, to marry her father-in-law. Cross-generational relations are forbidden. If we go into Leviticus, we find that all those kinds of relationships carry the death penalty. 
What is added at the time of Leviticus is is that you can't marry your sister either. You can't marry your brother. Of course, Cain and Abel married their sisters. Uh, It wasn't a problem until you get uh, to the time of Moses, and then that's excluded. But there's no death penalty attached to that. So Paul, once again, is going back to the creation motifs here in 1 Corinthians, discussing things that are there at the beginning of the world as we start into a new creation. And he says not even Gentiles do this kind of thing. He says even they know better than this. And the commentators usually quote a paragraph from Cicero and from some other sources showing that this is frowned upon even though sometimes it happens. Is a tsunami coming? Was that a tsunami report? Okay, guess not. We can stay here for now. Okay. So this is, uh, this is wrong. It's forbidden. And, uh, we'll see a little bit more about this particular sin in a moment. But he goes on to say that the Corinthians have perhaps become puffed up. He says, have you guys become puffed up? That is, arrogant and proud. Shouldn't you have mourned instead in order that the one who did this deed might be removed from your midst? Isn't that what you should have done? But you guys have decided not to do anything about it. Well, he's really jumping down their throats here, but as I pointed out to you, some of the mystery here in these crimes and sins in in Corinth is caused by the fact of the new creation. Since it's a new creation, do these old rules still apply? And I'm sure that most of the people in the church said, yeah, we need to get this guy dealt with. But there were some who didn't, and it hadn't been dealt with. And so Paul says in verse 3, I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present by the Holy Spirit, have already judged him who has committed this deed as if I were present in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then he says, and that's continuing uh, into verse 4, which really should be attached to verse 3. Then he says, When you are assembled, and I am with you by the Holy Spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you deliver this one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is all that? Okay, he says, I'm not there, but I'm the bishop over you guys. I know we're all Presbyterians here, and we don't like that, but pastors need pastors too. And uh, this idea that you shouldn't have older men in their 50s and 60s supervising younger pastors, this is a blip in the history of the church. And we will eventually get back to a decent kind of a hierarchy in that regard, a pastoral hierarchy, which we should have. And actually the reformers were in favor of, they just didn't get it, you know. All the bishops were bad, so we wound up in our traditions not having uh, pastors for pastors. But Paul is saying, look, you know, I started this church, I'm still supervising you guys, and uh, I'm telling you right now, I've delivered this guy over to Satan, and you better do it too. There's a little bit of a mystery here. Does he say, I, on my part, though absent in body, have judged him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is he saying, I have judged this guy who did this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Could he actually be either one, according to the grammar, um, as it appears in the Greek? which you don't know, but I, and I don't know either. I'm just leaning on the commentaries here. But they say that, you know, perhaps he judged, perhaps the severity of this sin is that it's happening in the church. It's happening where the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is placed, and they're allowing this to go on and saying, we Christians think it's okay to do this, and the Gentiles know better. And so that's the big scandal Or it could be he's saying, I have judged him in the name of our Lord Jesus. Either one fits the context, and so we can just 
go with both and think about both of them. And then he tells them when they come together, they're supposed to deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now that indicates there is something public about the excommunication. You know, modern Christians are shy enough about excommunicating people, and even worse, doing it in public. But it is a public event. Um, you have to at least read it out in the church and say, we as a church, the elders have decided that Billy Bob is turned over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh because he's been sleeping with his mother-in-law. And everybody in the church needs to say, Amen. And that's because that's what happened in Israel. If somebody committed this type of crime, they were stoned. And everybody had to add, add a stone to the pile. Usually they would kill the man, not stone him to death, but throw him down from a high place or kill him with a great big rock. But then everybody in the community had to walk by and toss a brick on the pile. So there'd be a big pile of stones there. And in the future, when your child said, Hey, Daddy, what's that pile of stones? Say, Well, son, that was the guy who attacked a little girl and killed her. And so we put him to death. And that pile of stones there is a reminder that you'd better never attack any little girls or any little children. Because if you do, you'll wind up under a pile of stones just like that one. And everybody in the community has to say amen by tossing a stone on the pile. Or perhaps by throwing a stone at the guy. You know, commentators differ on how this worked. But everybody's expected to join in the amen. And that's what he's alluding to here, as we'll see in just a moment. So he says, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, in the, on the final day when God comes to judge the world. What does it mean to turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh? That's a good question. It could be just excommunicating him and putting him outside the church into the realm where Satan is still more operative. Or it could mean deliver him to the accuser, turn him over to the state, turn him over to the civil magistrate. Uh, if, if this is against the law in the city, uh, so that the civil magistrate deals with it. Uh, practically speaking, this could go in a number of directions. The word, the word Satan means prosecuting attorney. So we could just take this down at a practical level and say, turn him over to the secular authorities. Now he's going to continue in, <coughs> excuse me, in chapter 6 by saying, that Christians, when Christians have difficulties among themselves, they should not go to the secular authorities. They should find wise people within the church to deal with conflicts, Christian versus Christian, and not go to the secular authorities. So it may be that he's, in this overall context, delivering someone to Satan means sending him to the secular authorities, turning him over to the government. But I think, although that might be a practical outworking of this, it might be entirely appropriate to do this. You know, if you have a person in your church who's committed incest with a child or something like that, you should turn him over to the prosecuting attorneys. You should not conceal that. Okay? Catholic Church has made some big mistakes by concealing that. You know, this is the kind of sin that has to be turned over to Satan. And that may practically mean turning him over to the civil magistrate. But I think it also means turning him over to those who afflict human beings, even angelic powers. So we can, we can leave this kind of loose, practically speaking. It means to excommunicate him. It could also mean turning him into the authorities. One thing is for sure, he's outside the church. Okay? Then he goes on and he uses an analogy. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. He says, it's, it's, it's proper to boast in the gospel. And he says that number of places in his own writings. He says, I, I boast in the gospel that I'm in a new creation. But he says, you've misunderstood what that is. Your boasting is not good. You say you're in a new creation, but you seem to think what that means 
is that some of the sins of the old creation are not sins anymore. And that's not good. Your understanding of the new creation is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, I explained to you what leaven was last night. Leaven is not yeast. Leaven is sourdough starter, okay? <clears throat> leaven in the Bible does not mean evil. Leaven means growth, okay? You can have good leaven or bad leaven. The kingdom of God is like sourdough starter put into some bread that leavens the entire lump. Under the law, uh, the Feast of uh, Pentecost, we waved leaven loaves before the Lord. When you had a peace offering uh, with the Lord, you had leavened loaves. So leaven is growth. And we want to be part of the new growth in the kingdom and to cut off the old growth of Egypt. And you do that every week. Every week you come into church, you leave Egypt, and you confess your sins. You say, during this past week, I've blown it. I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Not only in outward transgressions, but also in secret thoughts that I cannot even understand. I'm not even able to understand them. They're mysterious to me. I don't even see all my sins. If you saw all your sins, you'd commit suicide. So God graciously doesn't force you to look at all your sins. Okay? I don't even understand these, but you know them all. So I flee for refuge to your infinite mercy. And then the pastor says, brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Believe this and rejoice. Lift up your hearts. And you say, we lift them up to the Lord. Okay? Or you do something like that. But you cut off the Egyptian leaven right there. And then you start to get the new leaven. And the, the scriptures are read to you, and they go down inside of you as new leaven. But not the leaven of the Pharisees, which is bad teaching, but the leaven of the gospel. And you hear a sermon, and the leaven is going inside of you and starting to make you grow the right way. Leaven is teaching that causes you to grow in a bad way, or it's good teaching that causes you to grow in a good way. Well, <clears throat> he says, look here, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You have this kind of guy in your church and you don't deal with him, it will corrupt the congregation as a whole. In a lot of ways, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to go out committing this same sin. But it will create all kinds of division in, in the church. People will be arguing about this. People will be looking at the elders and saying, what kind of elders are these that they allow this kind of thing to go on? It will corrupt the body. You've got to deal with it. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out that old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. Okay, You are unleavened, you are removed from the old leaven, and you start up in the kingdom. Then he says, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. So let us therefore celebrate the peace, not with old leaven, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleaven, word bread isn't there, the unleaven of sincerity and truth. You start in the kingdom. Corinthians is always talking about the new start. You start out as unleaven of sincerity and truth, and then you begin to get the new leaven of the kingdom. And he says, cut out the old stuff and make a new start. Now, the reference to Passover is not to the atonement, okay? Passover is the event that separates us from them. It separates us from Egypt. And that's how it's explained in Exodus 12, verses 26 and following. It will come about when your little kids say to you, what does this ritual mean to you? You will say, it is a Passover Communion meal, sacrifice. The word sacrifice means communion meal in Hebrew. When you see that word, that's what it points to. It's a Passover communion meal for Yahweh because he passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and spared our homes. Okay? That's what Passover means. Yes, you know, blood is shed. It's propitiatory. 
The other aspects are there. But the main meaning of it that's pointed to is that this creates a holy people over here who are separated from Egypt. They're separated from the old leaven. And he says, look, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And every Sunday, hopefully, every first day, as he's going to call it, the first day of the week, you're going to come together and have a, have a feast based on this. Okay, and you, when you come to this feast, you need to have, you need to do it as a Passover, as people who have been set apart, who've been separated, who are no longer, um, living in Egypt. Okay? This other guy, you need to cast him out to Egypt where the angel of death is. You beginning to get the picture here? This kind of sin means you put him out of the household. You put him out there where the angel of death is passing and going around in Egypt, and he's no longer protected. He won't be passed by anymore. Satan is out there. Whatever is out there that can that can afflict his flesh, which you're going to lose anyway. Okay, you're going to be raised in the spirit. You're going to lose your flesh anyway, and this guy's flesh can be afflicted so that maybe he repents. Now, if we go over to Second Corinthians, it appears that this guy did repent, and Paul says, "Let him back in the church." But right now, he's got to be excommunicated. He has to be put outside of the house where the Passover blood is. He has to be separated from the feast, from the covenant meal. Okay? And and we need to celebrate the feast out of Egypt. Leave Egypt. Leave behind the old sourdough starter. And get rid of the sourdough starter of malice and wickedness. And have just plain wheat flour, or if you can't have wheat, something else, of sincerity and truth, and start the new leaven. That's what he's saying. Now he says, I wrote you in my letter. Ah, there's another letter from Paul that we don't have. He had sent him a letter, but it's not scripture. It's just a letter from Paul. And everybody knew, by the way, Everybody knew that these were scripture when they were written. There was no question in the church about it. People say, oh, there were all these books. And over a long period of time, the church sorted out which books were scripture and which weren't. And then Catholics say, yes, it's up to the church to decide what things are in the Bible and what things aren't. That's just not so. Okay? These guys, Paul knew when he wrote 1 Corinthians, when he finished it, he looked at it and said, Whoa, it was the Spirit who was working with me. This is Scripture. And everybody else knew it was Scripture, and they added it on to the Scriptures. And we know this because Second Peter, Peter says regarding the epistle to the Hebrews, he says, there's a letter from Paul that was written to you Jews, which men twist just like they do the other Scriptures. They knew when these letters were written that they were scripture and other things weren't. Now the church got confused about it and had to sort some things out later on. But just as the book of Jeremiah was known to be scripture when it was written, and just like the book of Daniel was known to be scripture when it was written, and these things were just added in, and other things like the book of Judith, which is really cool. You know, you want to, I mean, move aside Zena. We go with Judith over here. She's one tough warrior babe. I mean, she is a chicken chainmail when it comes to being one tough broad. You re- read the story of Judith. It's a great allegory. There's a town whose name is Virgin, and Judith and uh, this Virgin town is being attacked by demonic forces, and she goes out and chops the head off of this enemy commander and uh, saves the virgin of, of Israel. It's a wonderful allegory, and it's a great story. But it's not in the Bible, and nobody ever thought it was. See? It was known when these things were written. So that's just, okay, we have another letter here from Paul, which nobody ever thought was Scripture. Nobody ever, never even occurred to anybody that this other letter from Paul should be added to the canon. But this one, they knew instantly that it should be added to the canon. There was no doubt about these things. They had, you know, they had prophets and miraculous gifts in the early church that told them which things were scripture and which weren't. And we ought not to be shrinking back when Catholics say, oh, the church settled on the canon. No, it didn't. 
The canon, the Bible creates the church. The church does not create the Bible. So there. For all you Catholics out there. All right. I wrote you in my earlier letter not to associate with immoral people. Now look, he says, some of you are misinterpreting what I wrote. I did not mean immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or idolaters, then you would have to go out of the world. He says, I didn't mean don't associate with unbaptized pagans. <laughs> you'd, you'd have to become an Essene. You'd have to drop out. You'd have to become an Anabaptist. You'd have to become Amish. Just go live as a little cult off on the side here if you weren't going to have anything to do with covetous swindlers and idolaters because they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Now we, as Americans, you know, we don't very often see people doing open idolatry. And we don't live in a society where people just take every opportunity to steal. But in pagan societies, they do. So some of you have been to India, and you know that if you turn your back, they'll steal from you. Everybody you meet is ready to steal from you. All of them. They think it's cool. And they're idolaters, and they covet. They're all this way. They're not a discipline, they're not a society that has uh, had the discipline of the gospel. They'll steal as quick as they can. And he's saying, hey, you know, you live in Corinth, you know, you'd have to simply just go out of the world uh, if you didn't associate with non-Christian covetous and swindlers and stealers and thieves and idolaters. He says, what I meant was, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. So-called brother. Now, I want to remind you again. The letter begins by saying, all the people in this church, including this guy, they are all enriched in Christ. They have all knowledge. They're not lacking any gift. All of the people, including this guy he's saying to excommunicate, are going to be confirmed to the end, blameless in the day. God is going to be faithful. Once again, what you say to the church as a whole, which is absolutely true, doesn't change the fact that some people, if they disassociate themselves with Christ, if they leave the body, then those promises are no longer for them. Until they come back, then the promises are once again for them. The promises and the absolute assurance of eternal security is for the people who stay with Jesus. It's not magical. It's personal. Stick with Jesus and you should never doubt. Go away from Jesus and you'd better doubt. You need to doubt. Now he says, and we're almost done actually. Short chapter. He says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he should be an immoral person, that means sexually immoral. That's what this word means. A, a pornea guy, a porno guy. If he's into porno, okay, if he lives a porno life, or covetousness, or idolater, or reviler, okay, somebody who rails against the authorities, his parents, for instance, or a drunkard, or a, a thief, a swindler, Somebody who steals. Don't even eat with such a one. Okay. Now, does that refer to the Lord's Supper? Well, obviously it refers to that. Does it refer to other meals? Well, I think it does. And I don't think Paul really needs to tell us this if we understand it. Have you ever had, and I know this doesn't apply to the kids so much, but as adults, have you ever had a real fight with somebody or you're really out of sorts with somebody? And... You, you know, you're mad at them, and they're mad at you, and you've had a fight. And then they say, let's get together and do lunch. Well, you don't want to do that, okay? You don't want to sit down and eat with somebody that you're out of sorts with. It's a fact. You don't want to do it, okay? It's completely natural. Well, maybe we can get together and have a cup of coffee, and then if he says, I'll pay for it. You say, no, you won't pay for it. I'll pay for mine, you pay for yours. You don't want him paying for it because you're out of sorts with him. 
And you don't want to sit and have a whole meal with him. Maybe have a cup of coffee and talk some things over and get things reconciled, and then next time have a meal. But there's something grossly unnatural about sitting down and having a meal or letting a guy pay for it that you're at, at odds with. It's just a fact. Now, what Paul is saying here, I believe, he's saying you should have that feeling about Christians who behave this way. Okay? You, we take If somebody offends us personally, then we don't want to have a meal with them, and we don't want them paying for the cup of coffee. All right? He says you should take this personally. When somebody behaves this way in the church, you should take it personally. And you should feel estranged from that person, and you should not want to eat, sit down, and have a meal with them. You ought not to be comfortable with such people. That's what he's saying. So yes, don't let him to the Lord's Supper. But he says, don't you know? Don't be neutral about him either. With a, with an unbeliever, yeah, you can sit down and have a meal with an unbeliever. But a, a person in the church who is offended against Christ, you need to take it personally because you are in Christ. And their offense against Jesus ought to be treated as an offense against you because you're in Christ. It's the same offense. I want to point out something to you that scholars have noted, and I think is. Cool. So, I mean, it's been boring all week, but here's something cool. This list of crimes here comes from Deuteronomy, and it actually follows the order of Deuteronomy. And with one exception, these are all death penalty offenses in Deuteronomy. So it's, it's pretty clear that Paul is just going through Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy, and he's picking out the death penalty offenses in order. Now, the first one that he gives is... An immoral person, a porno person, sexually immoral. And that's out of order, but that's what he's talking about. So that's the one he mentions first. So that's in Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21. Excuse me, that's not right. The immoral person is in chapter 22. 21 to 22. A girl who commits harlotry in her father's house and then doesn't fess up to it and pretends to be a virgin. Uh, if the man, her husband, is not uh, uh, charges her and, and it turns out that she has committed porneia, they shall bring the girl out to the doorway of her father's house and the men of the city will stone her to death because she has committed an act of folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. And in this way you shall purge out the evil from among you. Now see, this is the same as cleaning out the old leaven. It's just what Paul is talking about here. If a man is caught lying with a married woman, they've misspelled it here, okay, adultery, then both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. Thus you shall purge out the evil from Israel. And then, most prominently, verse 30 doesn't have the penalty attached to it, but it's the same. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he shall not uncover his father's wing, the wing of his garment. So what's being done here in 1 Corinthians is exactly what is uh, forbidden here in Deuteronomy, committing adultery with your fathers, with your stepmother. Okay, so that's the first thing he mentions. Then he mentions covetousness, which doesn't have a death penalty attached to it. And then he goes through Deuteronomy in, in order. An idolater... You know, in Deuteronomy 13, if you start worshiping other gods, you're to be put to death. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 27, I'll read that one. Um, no, there is no. Uh, there is no 1727. 17-7, okay. Oh, 1 to 7, 2 to 7. If there's found in your midst in your towns which Yahweh is giving you a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight by transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or worshiped the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly host that I've told you not to do, and you hear about it, you will inquire thoroughly. And if it's true and this thing, this detestable thing has really been done, you shall bring that man or that woman who's done this evil deed out to your gates, and the man or woman, you will stone them to death. Thus you will... Purge out, burn out the evil from your midst. Get this old leaven out. That's 
the idolater. And what about the reviler? Well, we turn the page in Deuteronomy to chapter 19, and we have the false witness. If a malicious witness, this is 1916, if a malicious witness, a reviler, rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before Yahweh, before the priests and judges, and the judges shall investigate thoroughly. If the witness is a false witness and he has reviled his brother falsely, you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil. You will burn out the evil from among you. There's that phrase that Paul's alluding to here, getting rid of the leaven. And everybody else will hear about it and be afraid. And they'll never again do such an evil thing. And you will not show any pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Or in the book of Daniel, lion for lion. Okay? If he's trying to get somebody else killed by false witness, then he's to be killed. It's a death penalty offense to revile in that way. Or a drunkard. Whoa! Is there a death penalty for being a drunkard? Well, there is in one case. In Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21, if a man have a stubborn and rebellious son who doesn't obey his father and mother, they will seize him and bring him out to the elders, and they will say, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city will stone him to death, and you will purge the evil from your midst. There's our phrase again. And it's a death penalty offense. The son is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Where do we see that happen in the Bible? John the Baptist came fasting. The son came eating and drinking, and you said a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus is accused of this. He says... The son came, and you accused the son of being a glutton and a drunkard. That's part of the reason that Jesus was put to death, that false charge. And then the last thing he mentions is a thief or a swindler. And, of course, that's just talking ordinarily about stealing money from somebody else or goods. But there is a case, death penalty case, um, in Deuteronomy, and we have to just turn forward in Deuteronomy 24-7. If a man is caught kidnapping any of your countrymen of the sons of Israel and deals with him vilely or, sell, vilely or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall burn out the evil from among you. There's the phrase. So Paul, in talking about casting this man out and getting rid of the leaven, has gone back to Deuteronomy, and he's found all the places where it says, Thus you shall purge out the evil from among you, which are death penalty offenses. And he's using that as his rule for dealing with uh, these crimes and, and excommunications in the church, which then gives us something of a rule, too. Okay, What things are worthy of excommunication? Well, ultimately, the only thing you excommunicate for is refusal to repent. That is to say... Excommunication is done by the church for the sin of contumacy. Contumacy. Say that. Contumacy. Okay. Contumacy means refusing to hear the church. Okay. Contempt. That's, so if a person, if this man is committing this sin, if they go to him and he says, oh, it is a sin, sure, I've got to stop doing this, I'm sorry. Uh, and he repents, and he stops sinning, then he's not going to be turned over to Satan. Okay. No matter what your sin is, even if you're a mass murderer, if you repent, you're not cut off from the table. You know, excommunication is not some kind of punishment. Well, to punish you, we're going to excommunicate you for six months. No, it's not like that. Uh-uh. You don't use it that way. But the kinds of things that you can go to a person and say, stop doing this or you will be excommunicated, are these crimes. Okay, so it gives us some rules. And then in verse 12, he indicates, what have I to do with judging outsiders? I'm, I don't judge the world, but we judge within the church. Do you not judge those who are inside in the church? Those who are outside, the unbelievers, God will judge. As for us, he says, 
Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So that's chapter 5. As I said last night, we couldn't possibly have done all of 1 Corinthians unless I just gave you an outline or something and just skipped through a lot of it. But I hope I've hit a lot of the high points and we've gotten at least somewhat into the theme of it. Now we can take questions for a few minutes, if there are any, over anything. Uh Uh-huh. and stubble one will be, oh, I'm sorry, and that each one's work in chapter 3 will be made clear because the day will declare it. What day is he talking about, or is there several different days he's talking about? Yeah, I, I think uh, you have to look at context, and uh, especially in those, uh, in that, that passage, it's probably the final day, the, the second coming, what we call second coming. Uh, Let's see, you, you mentioned the chapter 3 one. Yeah. Uh, chapter 5. Uh, yeah, I would say the, the final coming there too. Uh, if it's talking about an individual being judged, it has to be the, the final coming. If it's talking about some kind of social upheaval, then it's, chances are that the first meaning is the immediate horizon a crisis in the empire and in Israel that's about to come. So I, I think that would be kind of a rule of thumb. Uh, for instance, in, in chapter 1, I argued it that way, where Paul is talking to the Corinthian church. He says they are eagerly awaiting the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's got to be a near-horizon thing. And then he says they will be they as a church will be confirmed to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, that would be both, but I can see there again, in the big crisis that's about to come, they're going to be confirmed in the midst of that. So I think a lot of times it's kind of a both and, but there'll be an emphasis on one or, or an emphasis on the other, depending on the context. Oh, where I got the text? Oh, sprung rhythm. That's what it's called. Sprung rhythm. Okay. Zoltan. When you were dealing with head coverings, I was wondering, when you were dealing with head coverings, I don't know if you've done any reading on this or not, but is my understanding that Contemporary Jews, they wear the yarmulke. The men wear head coverings. Yeah, it's an odd thing. Was that something that was in existence at that time? Or when did it come into being, and and do you know why they wear it now? I don't know when it came into being. Uh, It was not done in the first century. Uh, Does anybody know where the custom of men wearing... uh Okay, the suggestion is that they wear that as a sign of mourning for the loss of the temple. Uh, that How far back that goes, of course, is another question, too. Uh, if that's the only reason or if there are other reasons as well, it may depend on what rabbi you ask. But it, 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 it is interesting how that reverses the command in the Bible. Uh, Regarding the head coverings, uh, I wonder if you can uh, explain Numbers 5, where the woman stands before Yahweh and the priest uncovers her uh, before she drinks the uh, the bitter water. And also, regarding the head coverings, uh, I wonder if you can uh, explain Numbers 5, where the woman stands before Yahweh and the priest uncovers her uh, before she drinks the uh, the bitter water, and also in uh, uh, Leviticus, I think it's nine, where Aaron and his sons they actually wear head coverings when they minister. What's the purpose of that? Okay, Numbers five. 
Uh, let's see. Well, what it what it says here in uh, Numbers five eighteen, the priest palace servant shall then have the woman stand before Yahweh that is out in the courtyard in front of the tabernacle and let the woman's head go loose. Now that's paraphrased here as let the hair of her head go loose. There's not a thought of taking a hat off of her head or something. It's just loosening of her hair. So um, that's presupposing that uh, her hair is bound up and uh, I suppose you could say, well, maybe it was the custom of that time for women to bind their hair up. Uh, probably not all of them did. Uh, but the, the assumption here is if a woman has longer hair, you know, to keep it out of the way, <laughs> she has it, you know, pinned up or netted up on her head, and her hair is to be let loose uh, while this ritual takes place. Now, was there some particular reason reason you asked that? Why? Why? I'm not sure why. Okay. Um, the the inspection is to see if she has been faithful to her husband or not, and uh, well, this is such a hard thing to keep in mind. Uh, That letting her hair loose may have some way of being a sign that of the relationship she has with her husband. I mean, I can imagine something here that in public she wears her hair up, and when she's at home with her husband, she lets it down and and has that relaxed relationship. And so, in order to check how she's been with her husband, she's put into that situation which she would usually be with her husband, letting her hair down. Uh, but I don't know. See, I don't know if that's the right way to understand it or not. Actually, the whole head covering thing is uh, to do justice to that passage. There are a lot of Old Testament passages. There's the whole Nazarite thing in number six, which is about the head and what is done to the head. What's literally done is to the hair of the head, but the chapter keeps talking about the head itself. He puts his head on the altar. Uh, he dedicates his head and puts his dedicated head on the altar. What means his hair. The only person that was literally done to is John the Baptist, who was a Nazarite. And when they came to get his hair, they took his head too. Um, as regards the priests, I cannot recall. Does anybody recall if the ordinary priests had head covering, had hats or not? Pardon? They did? Okay. 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 All right. There again. Uh, maybe that's why uh, Jewish men wear them. Maybe they're thinking of themselves as priests in some sense. I don't know why that changes now that we're all priests, you might think that Paul would say, now that we're all priests, we should all wear uh, headgear. But he doesn't. So, sorry, some of these things are pretty mysterious, even to me. <laughs> Anybody have any thoughts? Any of the rest of you have any thoughts on this? Thought about this or... Those are good questions. <laughs> the, uh, what I was thinking was possibly that the woman, who's, if her hair was normally up, she's even the threat of going through this process would keep some women from going there to begin with. If, if it's such a humbling thing, her, if her glory is for her husband and she has to let her down, let her hair down in a public setting, um, that would make many women tremble right off the bat in that certainly in that society. Yeah. And if if that's the accurate scenario, yeah. then that could be right. And so she would 
you know, normally that would be her glory for her husband, and now it's having to be revealed to many. <laughs> yeah. Um, kind of a humbling thing. The, the question I had, too, was if the... And originally, if these men were in the, within the law were turned over to... Uh, well, not turned over. They weren't turned over to anybody. It was, their punishment was carried out within the people. Uh-huh. Um, now we have that authority... Paul doesn't seem to show that that authority is still with the church to death, you know, for death penalty. Um, and so traditionally we've understood that to go out to the state. Um, in a situation, you know, across this world it varies, but various states uh, then do not fulfill even that portion of it. So what are we, what should be our pursuit long term for in the case of death, death penalty, this, this, you know, where scripture says this is worthy of death, mm-hmm. we as a church have kicked, kicked this person out in hopes they'll repent. Um, or in the worst cases, obviously, if there's been murder of some of the other cases you've mentioned, we actually turn them over to the authority, and the authority puts them in jail for a year or two and then lets them out. You know, what should be our true pursuit there, future, and hope for the future, I guess, for that person? Should we be pursuing you know, for the individual person? Well, should we, no, should we be pursuing, what should we be pursuing with our state? What should we be encouraging them to do? To go back to following? Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you work for reformation in the state. Uh, I mean, our civilization, the way it used to be, came about because over a long period of time the church converted the civil rulers and reformed the uh, various tribes and nations and Roman Empire and whatnot in a biblical direction. And now we've moved away from that. So just as it took a long time to convert and bring about those changes, so we're looking at the same agenda now. In the meantime, I, I think... Uh, Jesus has a way of stepping in and dealing with things when, when the magistrates don't. I mean, the Bible says that the commission of homosexual acts should be bought, should bring a death penalty. Well, we won't do it, so Jesus invents the AIDS and he does it. <laughs> uh, so, but, but long term, we want to reform society to where that particular kind of activity is driven way back into the closet where it belongs. There's no way, we, we are not given the right as individuals to exercise the death penalty, so the church can excommunicate. And really, if, you know, the church is now, look at the church in America and places north of America. The churches won't, churches won't even excommunicate for these things. I mean, most Presbyterian churches, most conservative Presbyterian churches, if they had these kinds of things going on in their midst, and and somebody just kind of quit coming to church or drifted off, they'd just erase them off the rolls rather than do something public and stand up in front of the congregation. Because as soon as you stand up in front of the congregation and say, um, we as the elders have consigned such and such a person over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh because of sins that he's committed, you're going to have one-fourth of your congregation, the wood, hay, and stubble part, are going to rise up and say, how dare you, who do you think you are? Uh, and uh, then you're going to have more problems to deal with, uh, which is just fine and dandy. It just kind of exposes those who need to be kicked out. I mean, the, the Jesus' message to the letters in the letters of the seven churches is every single letter, he says, you haven't kicked out enough people yet. So... Uh, it's it's good for these things to come up, and then you find out who belongs in the church and who doesn't. But it it is a trial to have to go through that kind of thing, and so churches would rather not do it. And as long as the churches refuse to exercise godly government, we can hardly expect the civil magistrate to do so. Well, let's take, yeah. I guess you know one of our desires is to see reformation. You know, we're in RCC, you know, we've tried to start with our families and, you know, we're working on our church and, and so I guess right now, where can, what should our emphasis be in relationship to our families and, and, and also in our church? 
and then of course the civil government. But I'm looking for emphases. I, I don't. I can't. The question know, isn't clear to me. Well, you know, we you know we can go and uh, be involved civilly in various things, and 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 uh, you know I know that you know many of us homeschool. Um, we're we're trying to you know bring about the next generation to carry the standard further down the field. You know, we're I know in the CRE we're trying to you know build it toward a direction of strength and stability and uni- unity and to carry forward the church into the world. Um, can you give us some direction on emphases in our families that we, you know things that we could be doing and uh, goals that we could have you know and also our church? Well, I, I could probably answer that question if I sat down and took some time, but right off the top of my head right now, I can't. I mean, I don't have some internal list that I can call up right now. I mean, the, the first thing that has to be done is the church, because the church is the model for the family. So um, the New Testament is clear that one of the biggest enemies of the church is the family. And so the church has to be set up and, and reformed strengthened and then that influences and patterns for the family. Um, so we want we want redeemed families and redeemed families take their cue from the church. The things that I think are important in the church are uh, you know sound teaching of the entire Bible and uh, a strong emphasis on singing because the Father seeks worshipers and worship is by music. Uh, the Holy Spirit works primarily through music. And so um, if, if I were dealing with a situation, the first thing I would try to do is to create a musical worship in the church um, using the Psalms of David to retrain people's thoughts and attitudes. Then I would, I would seek to see that spilling over into the families, patterning for families. And then... You know, begin to, begin to take time to uh, witness to the magistrate as well. But specifically, I don't have any. Well, you're going down the trail that I was uh, thinking of. Okay. So then, how how do you see this spilling out into the family? Uh, I think that when uh, when kids are singing exciting songs in church, they'll sing them at home. Uh, I know that from experience, <laughs> having taught kids in Christian school um, for a number of years. I know that I know what they like. They like serious songs. Um, people have it in their heads that what children like are simple dimple little praise chorus things. And they don't for the most part. They like stuff. They like st- things in minor keys because it sounds serious. Uh, they like, I don't mean everything has to be in what we call minor keys, but uh, they like big words. I remember second graders coming up to me and after chapel and saying, Mr. J- Pastor Jordan, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. The longer the word, the more they like it. <laughs> so, you know... That spills into the family, the, 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 the order of, if you have a set form of worship in the church and repeated prayers, that can, that can discipline family worship. Most people find family worship very difficult to do, and you might as well admit it. I found it hard to do, very hard. And one of the reasons was I was never, you know, we weren't in liturgical churches as much as I wanted to be in one. And it's kind of hard to just gin it all up on your own. But if you have if you have memorized prayers and things like that from the church, you can pull them over into the family. If children see all their aunts and uncles in the church uh, living in a disciplined kind of life, that spills over into your family. If you if you have a sound understanding of infant baptism, infant baptism is a public confession of the impotence of the father and the mother. Okay. I am totally incapable of raising these children. So I ask that God will be their father and the church will be their mother. And so if the church 
helps out to be the mother of your children, then there's lots of uh, aunts and uncles in there that can spank them if you're not around. <laughs> and, you know, uh, or you know, take them by the hand and say, don't do that. You know, it's not the family alone. It's the family in the context of this bigger family that's helping you out. We, we don't usually have godparents in our ritual of baptism, although I think that's a very good idea. Uh, we have the whole congregation as godparents, which is a good idea. But it's also good to have another, another couple that takes specific interest in your kids because there comes a time when your children are this tall that it's harder to talk to them. They don't want to listen to you anymore. And that's natural. It's natural for children to grow from relating to father to relating to older kids because God manifests himself to us as father but also as big brother. And there, there is a time when teenagers start to relate more to the older kids. So you want some older kids around that will reinforce what father does. But if you just keep insisting on relating to your 15-year-old the way you, you did when he was five, that will backfire. But that's where if you have another couple that's been godparents and who every year have come to the birthday party, they, are, they have a different position and they can probably sit down with the 15-year-old and say some things that would be harder for you as a father to say. So, as I say, getting, getting the church in good shape can disciple the family, can add a whole lot of things to the family. You know, one of the things that uh, I think many of us had uh, uh, seen in history is that as the, uh, many of the uh, very high liturgy churches, Roman Catholicism, various like that, you know, the emphasis was placed so much on the church that the family emphasis was... Uh, Detracted, you know, like, so now here I'm hearing you saying, okay, we need to get the families practicing family worship, um, you know, so that the church is, is equipping the families uh, that, um, you know, obviously, you know, the Anglicans had, or the uh, Church of England had the Church of Book Order for Family Worship. Uh, great emphasis is on that, and the early Presbyterians were very uh, in tune in the Dutch into uh, teaching the catechism and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, Am I hearing you say that the church needs to be overseeing the families and encouraging them in that direction? Well, perhaps to some extent. Uh, what I'm actually saying is that when the, when the church is healthy, the families are going to be healthy. And, you know, those, those healthy times in the history of Protestantism were times when the churches were healthy, that the people were involved in. And when the church isn't very healthy, the families aren't going to be, and it's hard for the family to do it by itself. God did not institute the family, did not, has not given to the family the kind of power to do these things by itself. And uh, if you're stuck on a desert island, you'd have to do the best you can. But the, the power to bring about spiritual uh, renewal is in the church at the Lord's table, not at your dinner table. And, but if you start there, then it can spread into your family. And so when the church is strong, the families are going to be strong. And uh, a weakness in a particular family will show up. You know, if you have, if once you get the entire whiteboard white, then all the little specks of dust are more visible. If you have a real bright light in a room, you can see more of the dirt. So when the church is strong, the families are going to be lifted up. That's what I'm saying. I, I don't particularly care for the idea that elders ought to go around and and uh, into the homes and you know inspect every last thing. Some some visitation is fine, but you got to leave some people some space too. But helping people to get family devotions going is a good thing. I'm pretty much out of time, but if if you, I mean we are out of time, okay. so this has to. Is this real quick? Yeah, it's kind of off the subject, but uh, out of curiosity, do you like eating your donuts with milk? Do I what? Eat your donuts with milk. Eat my donuts with milk? Yeah. I'm allergic to milk, so no. (laughs) Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.